Okay, so this episode, like all of our episodes, is quite disturbing and unfortunately it does deal with violence against children, so it might not be suitable for all listeners. Okay, so to get started, on Monday, August 2nd, 1982, Bob Johnson and his wife, Jackie Johnson, were taking their two daughters, Janet, who was 13, and Karen, who was 11, on an exciting camping adventure. So they had planned to go to Jasper National Park in Alberta, uh, Canada, with Jackie's parents, George and Edith Bentley. So the whole family loved to camp, and this would be their first time going to Wells Gray Park. So George, who was Jackie's father, aged 66, who had recently retired, and his wife, Edith, who was 59, they decided that it was sort of time to get back out, enjoy their lives, you know, spend some time with their family, their grandchildren, and, you know, enjoy the beautiful scenery and parks that Canada had to offer. Mm -hmm. So he actually bought like a brand new truck for the camping trip. It was a 1981 heavy duty silver Ford pickup truck. And he put like an aluminium boat on top of the camper as well. So I assume, I don't know, maybe for like going out on the water, Um, fishing or something. Bob, his wife Jackie and the girls were planning on meeting their grandparents in a place called Clearwater near the head of the North Thompson River high in the Columbia range of the Rocky Mountains. Clearwater, do you watch Virgin River? No, why? There's a place called clear water or clear river and it just reminds me like I'm picturing that setting. Yeah, like just so picturesque and beautiful. gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. So The Johnsons were bringing a tent and sleeping bags for the girls and the adults were going to sleep in the Bentley camper van. So like a lot of people, they preferred to be away from big crowds or large groups. So instead of going to the main park campsites, they set out to find something a little bit more off the beaten track. And Bob liked to fish, so they did want somewhere that was more secluded but still close to the river for fishing. So they came across an old abandoned prison site and that was the perfect place to set up. It had reasonably flat ground to put up the tent and park the camper. So the family loved being in the outdoors. The girls could sort of run around and explore. They fished, they lit campfires at night and the girls toasted marshmallows. Their grandmother Edith loved to bake and they would help her pick berries for blackberry pie. Can I just say that just sounds like the dream, yeah, doesn't it? It sounds yeah. so lovely, like just this lovely little family uh, up in the Canadian in like the wilderness, so naturey, beautiful lakes, that blue water, yeah, just perfect, perfect family holiday. So one night after Jackie had put the girls to bed in the tent, they were whispering sort of about what they would get up to tomorrow when a loud... So the two girls were whispering? Yeah, they're like, they've gone to bed, they should be sleeping. So, you know, they're just chatting like kids in the tent, like what we'll do tomorrow when a loud bang startled them both. Outside the tent, there was screaming and yelling, but the girls, you know, they couldn't hear what anyone was saying. And then they heard two more loud bangs. They were terrified and... Yeah, because it was just them in this area, right? Just they them. in a campsite, so... Yes, there was no one else really around, like I said, off the beaten track. So just as Jane went to unzip the tent door, she realised it was already being opened from the outside. <gasps> she could see the shape of a person um, who she assumed was her mother and just as she met her mother's eye through the hole that the zip had made, another loud bang went off and it was so loud that she actually jumped back 
When she looked back, her mother was gone and it was completely silent. Oh my God. The girls were terrified and screaming and then an unfamiliar figure approached the tent and a much larger hand started to unzip the tent oh, from the outside. The actual fear of that. On August 23rd, 1982, which was almost three weeks since the family had gone camping, Al Bonner placed a call to report a missing person. Al was a manager of Gorman Mills, so Bob Johnson was his employee, and he hadn't shown up to work. So Bob is the girl's father. Okay. So he informed the police that Bob had never taken a sick day, never mind just not showing up for work. He informed them that his family were due back from a camping trip on the 16th of August and he had missed almost a week of work now. And nobody else had heard from the family in the time that they were supposed to have been home. So initially it was hoped that the family were just lost but safe somewhere. There were rumours that they had run away and joined a cult or were in an accident but everyone had their fingers crossed that they would be found safe and sound. The police led a search that went on for weeks, but to no avail. So to give context on the size of the area, Wells Gray Park was British Columbia's second largest park with over a million acres. So it's a lot of ground for them to search. Humongous. Finally, on September 13th, a man remembered seeing the Johnson family while he was out picking mushrooms in the Wells Gray Park sometime in late August. And he claimed he had seen a burnt out Chrysler in the woods. So a Chrysler is a car. A sergeant from the area headed up to the location that the man had described to him. So it was a very rough trail. It was like too rough for your average car and he could see tire marks and he got out of his car to follow the tire marks and it wasn't long. So he couldn't actually drive. Yeah, that's how rough it was. And it wasn't long before he saw the outline of what looked like a burnt out car. He saw the license plate and he knew immediately that it was the Johnson car. They, he glanced inside and what he saw caused him to rope the car off and call the homicide team immediately. In the car was what looked like skeletal remains of what could only be assumed was the Johnson family. The ground was scorched for about 20 feet all around the car. It had burned so hotly that the door handles and all four tyres had melted away. So they figured that whoever had burned the car had used some sort of accelerant. The trunk was closed and it was pried open with a crowbar and the skulls of two children were facing upwards. They rested on a pile of shard bones. One of them had a hole over the left eye which looked to be a bullet exit wound. So forensics confirmed that it was six skulls rendering six victims and eventually dental records confirmed who they belonged to and all six bodies were identified as the Johnson and Bentley family. On September 23rd, about 10 days after the bodies were found, the families decided to hold a funeral service for their loved ones. The rest of 1982 passed without any further movement on the case. By January of 1983, several cash prizes were being offered. So $7,500 was offered for information leading to the truck and the camper. So the grandparents were driving. uh, Like I said, the grandfather had bought a new truck. He was so excited about the trip. I know, I know. And also $35,000 was being offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible. So 
the police came up with like some sort of publicity campaign where they would like drive a truck with a camper the same as the one driven by the Bentleys across Canada and after they did this they were receiving like a lot of tips and calls from people you know along the same line as of when the murders actually first happened but when they eventually did find the truck, it didn't have anything to do with this trip across Canada. I don't understand that at all. So they were, were basically trying to like jog people's memories by driving the same truck that the Bentleys had drove to see if anybody had seen it. Right. So, so they'll be the like, truck. oh, there's that truck. Oh, I think I saw that before. Yeah. And where they seen it? It's because they haven't found this one yet. On Tuesday, October 18th, 1983, two forestry workers had found the burnt-out truck and camper up Trophy Mountain. So a few feet down from the truck was a large canyon, so it was more than likely the killer or killers wanted to drive the car off the cliff, but it got stuck. So where the truck was located was also a good indication that whoever the killer or killers were, that they knew the area well enough. So that sort of gave the police an idea that the the person or persons could be from Clearwater. On the passenger side door of the burnt out truck, there was a 22 caliber bullet hole in the panel door. So the police decided to keep this information to themselves because they wanted to weed out any false confessions. You know, you get those weirdos that mm, be like, yeah. you know, or, or trying to implicate someone that they've, you know, got a grievance with or something. Yeah. So the police decided to go door to door to canvas um, uh, of the Clearwater and Wells Gray area. On one of the houses that they knocked on, a gruff-looking man came to the door. So he was quite aggressive in nature and he sort of was quite angry, responding to the police. You know, I've already answered those questions. To which his wife then asked, you're not going to tell them about Dave and the truck that got shot up. So he angrily replies to his wife, that's not our business. Right. So obviously so who's they Dave? Know, yeah, they know a little something. So the police set up surveillance of the house. And as soon as the husband left, they go in and they bring the wife in for questioning. And luckily she, you know, is willing to talk. So she told them that a local man, David Shearing, wanted to know how he could register a vehicle that was stolen and how he could fix a bullet hole in the door. Okay, sounds dodgy enough. Sounds suspicious. So 24-year-old David Shearing lived on his father's farm located just two miles away from where the bodies were discovered. In November, he was taken in for questioning regarding the Johnson-Bentley murders. So the detectives had been working this case for 15 months at this point, And right now, they only had sort of circumstantial evidence. So Shearing is kind of, you know, he's a little bit shaky. He lights multiple cigarettes before the interview begins. When they ask if he but, knew... Uh, like, in fairness, which is, like, if I was getting taken in questioned by the police or the guards for murder I'd be shaky too even if I didn't do anything yeah I know like, like I'm shaky going through airport yeah. to security <laughs> <laughs> if I don't even you know what I mean yeah you know you're stopped by the guards you're doing nothing wrong yeah. in the car and you're like yeah. where's my license yeah um, so like when people say oh you know he was shaky like, <laughs> like I get like yeah I know that does not mean that it's he's not that there. sus but okay so this however is sus when they asked if he knew where the car and the truck were found, he replied with yes. But however, when they asked if he knew where the family were killed, he replied Bear Creek. 
At this particular time, nobody knew where the family were murdered, only where their bodies were found. So it's at this point that that the detectives realise that he sort of knows more than he's letting on. So in attempts to get him to talk, you know, they're trying to really make him relax, assuring him that people do stupid things all the time and as long as he's honest, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, he broke down and starts to cry. The detectives then ask, where is the gun, David? And he answers, at the ranch. Oh, my God. So his story about what happened that night is that he spotted the camper one night in August on his way home from work. And on that same evening, he went for a walk. He then found the campsite where the families were camping. He said that he watched them for a while and then left and went home. But the following night, he went back to the campsite carrying a 22 caliber rifle. He said there was four adults around the fire pit and he opened fire. What? And then when they were all dead, he went to the tent, crouched down and shot the two girls. Loaded the bodies into the car with the girls in the trunk. He collected all of their possessions and threw them into the camper. He claimed that he stalked the family for a couple of nights before shooting them, loading them into the car, stole some property, drove the vehicles into the night and torched them both. But what, like... What is the motive for that? Yeah, what, you're not just randomly walking. Oh, I see a family camping. So he goes and gets his gun and shoots him for, like, no reason to steal a few possessions. That just doesn't... That's it's what? just shocking. The community of Clearwater are shocked by this arrest His mother, Rose, who lived in a nursing home at the time, was distraught when she heard of his arrest, saying that it was a mistake. He had come from a good, respectable family and he had no significant criminal record. Now, when I say significant, he had like, you know, theft, but nothing obviously of this magnitude. Um, And a respectable family, like he had a brother who was in the police force. His father, I think, was retired. Um from the police force I'm not sure exactly what they did but you know they were a well-known family yeah like law-abiding citizens yes so he was set to stand trial in April 1984 one of the detectives on the case felt like there was more to the story and he informed David of this gut feeling that he had he said to him the day that you're sentenced I'm going to come and collect come and collect what you no like this the truth basically he doesn't buy it supreme court justice harry mckay said what we have very simply is a cold-blooded and senseless execution of six defenseless and innocent victims for no apparent reason the sentence i impose in conjunction with such matters as protection of the public and specific deterrence must have proper regard for public opinion and must express in clear terms the revulsion felt by the great majority of our citizens for this senseless and vicious mass killing. The victims were unknown to the prisoner. They did not in any way provoke him. He knew where they were camped at and carefully scouted the situation. He then went home, returned that night or the next with a loaded twenty-two rifle. Why? We do not really know, but it seems it was to rob and kill. The enormity of the crimes demand the maximum sentence. 
So on April 17, 1984, he was sentenced to six concurrent terms of life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. So this was the maximum possible penalty for second-degree murder and the first time in Canadian history that it had been handed out. So when that detective returned to collect his true information, the sentence had already been handed down. So it it wasn't actually going to make any difference to his sentence if he sort of told the detectives a different story or the actual accurate story of why he committed the crimes. Yeah, because it's just, it's so random. Yes. He told David Shearing, you know why I'm here, David. I think you sexually abused those girls before you killed them. You told me some time ago that you would consider telling me the rest of the story after you were sentenced. Well, I'm here to collect, David, and I'm not taking no for an answer. So he had spotted the family with these two young girls when he was on his way home from work. He said he saw the family when they set up camp and spent several days spying on them with a fantasy to have sex with Janet and Karen. And he knew that he was going to have to kill those four others to get to the girls. When he was there watching them from the bushes, one of the women spotted him. So he wasn't sure whether it was the mother or the grandmother as it was dark. He told her not to move as he had a gun. But their father, Bob, stood up and shot him. Oh my God. Sorry, Father Bob stood up and David shot him. So he shot him in the throat and he was gurgling and making a lot of noise. The older man, who was obviously the grandfather, started running over to the truck and he shot him next to the passenger side door. Then the mother of the girls went running to the tent, obviously to try and save her daughters. And he shot her in the head about halfway between the fire and the tent then turned to find the grandmother who was trying to get into the camper van and shot her in the head too. Oh my God, can you imagine how terrifying or how terrified the girls must have been? And like the mother or the grand, like seeing this happen. Yes, seeing this happen and thinking, why is he doing this? What does he want? I know. Once they were all dead, he went over to the tent that the girls were in. They were sitting up on their elbows and he told them that there was a bad, there was bad people outside, a biker gang, and that he was there to help and save them. He told them to stay in the tent and he left to put the four bodies in the car. After this, he crawled into the tent with the girls where he sexually assaulted them. He then told them to get into his car that he had saved their parents, that they had gone off to get help and he was going to save them too. So he sort of told the story that the girls believed him and they were, you know, they trusted him. They would do anything he asked because he'd saved their parents. But these girls were... 13 and 11 they heard the screaming they heard the shooting they witnessed their mother being shot because she had actually opened the tent a little bit and they could see her and you know then this is clearly a bad man well he climbs into their tent and sexually assaults assaults them. them exactly so you know him telling the story that they trusted me i mean they were obviously either fighting for their lives or were just doing what he told them because of how terrified they were he kept the girls at his ranch for almost a week. He claimed that they slept in a sleeping bag and he slept oh separately to them. So 
he actually informed the detectives, this is just this one of the saddest things, that on one of the mornings, a prison guard for the Clearwater Correction Centre actually came up, knocked on his cabin door and told him that some, you know, mild prisoners were fishing in the river, but he need not be worried. At this exact time, the girls were hiding behind the door. Oh. So he had told them to hide behind the door and be quiet. And then the guard turned and left, noticed nothing unusual, like so close to being saved. So at this point, he's like, okay, you know, I, I could have got caught there. So he, at this point, asks Karen to go for a walk with him. And he takes her out into the woods and he told her that he had to do a pee. So she turned around and when she wasn't looking, he shot her in the oh back of the head. He is evil to the core. And then he went back to Janet the next day, asked Janet to come for a walk with him. And then the same thing, turned around. Um, sorry, she turned around so that he could take a pee. And then again, shot her in the back of the head, killing her also. So they, when they actually go to check his cabin, they actually find um, in the woods, like, his initials DS plus JJ, David Shearing plus Janet Johnson. Oh my God, what? Like, that's so creepy. So unbelievably creepy. Like I said, his sentence couldn't be changed because he had already been sentenced for their murders. But he did tell the parole panel that he had had sexual fantasies, including rape and murder since he was a teen. He said he was only interested in Janet and killed the adults because they were in the way. I saw them as a means to an end. I saw the four adults basically as being in the way of what I wanted at the time. So he's sort of like, I just killed them because they were there and I kind of just killed Karen because she was there. I really wanted Janet and then I killed her. He did apologize to the victim's families and said he has powerful feelings of shame and regret. Somehow I don't... But thankfully, all of his parole applications have been denied because this guy is like a clear Evil. monster. Yeah. He actually married someone in 1995 from, from prison. He married a woman called Heather. I don't get these women. These women, I don't get this either. So she claims, you know, he's changed. He is not the same person he was when he committed these crimes. And like, you know, did she, she forgives Keep him. Keep dreaming, Heather. Um, so all of the information, well, not all of the information, most of the information that I got for this episode, um, was from a book called Murder Times Six by Alan Warren, which was very informative of, um, you know, everything that happened, etc. Um, but this was just such a shocking case in Canada. It was one of the first of its kind and the whole community were just shocked and appalled at how it happened and you know it's still talked about and haunts the community almost 40 years later okay guys so we know that that was a really um tough episode to listen to but we are so thankful for all our listeners every week and uh, we hope you tune in next week for another episode of what's the crime thank you thanks guys 